0: Excuse excuse me, scripture reading this morning will be from Psalm 24. So you can turn there, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the King of glory. And we are to lift our heads up in your presence and inviting you, Lord, to to come in, to be the ruler of our lives, and that you might be the exalted one, Lord, in each of our hearts and in our assembly. So we thank you, God, that we have this great privilege to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus, to look at your word and to learn of you. And we do pray, God, that your spirit would instruct our hearts that you might be exalted and that we would walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're going to be in Second Samuel um, 3, 5, and 6 this morning. Uh, before doing that, though, I, starting there, I wanted to just thank Todd for standing in for me last week, preaching for me. Patchy and I made a road trip. We went out to Lake Jackson, Texas at first to see uh, our kids that are there. And then we drove over to Louisiana to see our kids that were there. And then we drove up to uh, northern Kentucky to see the park. It is huge. It's a big boat. Very big. Um, it's worth seeing. We really enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's really amazing to just get it in perspective because they did build it according to scale. And, um, um, and it really just is fascinating. I, I would highly recommend going to see it if you haven't seen it already. Um, it's on an 800 acre facility and um, property, and they are just beginning to develop it. It's going to have a lot more out there besides the ark in years to come, um, but it's worth seeing now even before they've added everything else. So anyway, I don't want to spend all morning on that. Um, we're looking at the life of David, and we're going to principally be in chapters 5 and 6 this morning, but it, it helps um, to set the context a little bit to start in chapter 3 in one small section here that I don't believe I made any mention of. Um, or at least not in any detail um, the last time I was preaching. And in chapter 3, David has not yet um, uh, taken the throne as king of Israel, but he is king over Judah in Hebron. And, And so remember Abner, the commander of the army of Israel to the north, is offering Israel to David. And so David is in full agreement with that. And so in verse 12, it says, Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But this is the thing I want to look at. But I demand one thing of you, namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. And you remember, this is the first woman that David married. And, and it's, as we looked at that earlier in 1 Samuel, the Bible tells us that she loved David, but it never says that David loved her. And it seems that David married her because it would, would ingratiate him to Saul and maybe... Keep Saul off his back because Saul wanted to kill him, and so what better way to not be killed than to become the son-in-law of the guy that wants to kill you, right, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't resist. I know. I wasn't planning on that, but anyway, he's safe. Um. So David was seen, he was motivated by very practical concerns here to marry Michael. And she was at, though she loved him, she was not a godly influence in his life. And so David's not bringing her back because he loves her and misses her. Um, that has nothing to do with this. It seems that David had maybe two primary motivations for this. One, and they're both cultural, but the first is that in this culture, the reason a man multiplied wives is because as a man grew stronger and stronger, this was a way through multiplying of wives that he could express his power. So only rich, powerful men multiplied wives. And the richer they became, the more wives they would take. And so when another man has your wife, it makes you look weak in this culture. And that's why Saul took her away and gave her to another man, because Saul was saying to the nation, David is nothing. I can take away his wife and give her to another man. I'm the one with the power. And so culturally, David believes he is not going to be able to rule as king over the entire nation as long as another man has his wife. Because they're going to say, you're nothing, man. That you would let another man have your wife, why should we follow you? You're weak, you're powerless. And so that was probably the first and primary reason that David wanted her back. The second reason is because David's biggest threat was from the house of Saul. From the Benjamites. And so by taking her back, the daughter of Saul, it would have maybe, in David's mind, worked to bring together, to heal the division that was there between Judah and Benjamin. And so the people of Benjamin would have been less inclined to stay on their own and more inclined to submit to the throne of David if David's wife is from their own tribe. So very practical reasons, in David's mind, very good reasons for taking her back. The problem is, it's not biblical. So if you look with me real quickly here at Deuteronomy chapter 24. And David would have been very well acquainted with this passage of scripture. Deuteronomy 24. This is the same passage that Jesus... um, was responding to with the Pharisees when they asked him about divorce in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. But Matthew 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So in other words, if your wife is no longer your wife, and she becomes another man's wife, under no circumstances can you take her back. Even if the second husband dies and she is now a widow, you cannot marry her again. It is an abomination, and you bring sin upon the land. David knew this. So David is not acting biblically. He's acting culturally. He had culturally good reasons. But scripturally, he was sinning against God. There's no doubt about this. And so here's another instance in the life of a very good man. A man after God's own heart. Who was not acting in accordance with God's will. And as we've noted before... The only area in David's life where he never consulted God was with women. Not in a single instance throughout his 40 years of being king and the years prior to that do we have one mention of David seeking God before he took another wife. He just didn't. He was acting on his own, doing what he thought was fine, and this was an area of his life that's going to bring great grief to him and to all Israel, multiplying these wives. If you knew a family today that had within that family one son who murders another son. And the reason he murdered him was because that son had raped one of the sisters. You wouldn't think that's a great family. That is David's family. David had a son who raped one of his daughters and who in turn was murdered by one of his other sons. And that's just the beginning of it. There are many more problems besides that. And it's because it was this, what seemed to David to be an insignificant area of his life that was unyielded to the Lord. And it brought untold sorrow and pain to him and to his entire family and into the, to the entire nation. So we need to go to chapter 5 now. I wanted to, to start with that because it's going to fit into what's going on in chapter 5 and 6. David is, is now king over all of Israel, the first five verses of chapter 5. And so we, uh, the reason I wanted to read that is because it puts into perspective what are, what are David's top items, top agendas of what needs to take place Now that he has become king. And we know from 2 Samuel 3 that the number one list on on his list, the number one thing that needs to happen when he becomes king is to get Michael back. That's amazing. And so now, chapter 5 and 6, we see what's further down the list. And these are good things. These are really good things in chapter 5 and 6. The first is, I need a capital city. And the second is, we need to get the ark here into Jerusalem. And so those are the two major things, but they're listed two and three in David's list of priorities. His first priority was get Michael back. He's no different than us, and I don't want to be too hard on him, because I've often, as often said, I don't want to spend eternity apologizing to people that are in the Bible. Because, um, really, we have, we too so often will act culturally rather than biblically. And our first instinct is, what does it take to survive? What does it take to prosper? And even as believers, our first instinct is not always the things that are honoring to God. So in chapter 5, verse 6, Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, So David came to to conquer them. And they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away. So they were so confident in the fortifications of this city, they said blind people and lame people can keep you out. So they mocked David. Nevertheless, verse 7, David captured the stronghold of Zion that is in the city of David. That is the city of David. Now, how he did this, Chronicles seems to indicate that Joab entered through the water passage, the subterranean water passage that, was, that, that went underneath the hill that Jerusalem sits in, sits on, and that he was able to conquer the city, take the city through that means. Joshua had, had already previously conquered Jerusalem, but it went back into the hands of the Jebusites and has been under their control for a long, long time. And so they felt themselves invincible. Probably the reason David wanted this stronghold was precisely because it was such a, 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 a tremendous um, fortress and a place easy to defend. It had cliffs on three sides, and so it was, um, I, it was situated in a way that it was a great city to defend. But it was also because it was within the territory of Israel, but it had not been under the, under the control of Israel for over a hundred years, that it wasn't really considered Israel. It was considered Jebusite. So there was no tribe in Israel that could lay claims on it. Judah couldn't lay claims on it. Benjamin couldn't lay claims on it. So it was actually a very strategic choice, not only because it was a good fortification, but also because in taking this and making this the capital city, David was not... Um, identifying exclusively with Judah, his own tribe. So he was being diplomatic here and choosing a city that no one within Israel could lay claims on. And so that was probably, again, a motivation for taking this city. And then we're told that the Lord, verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Now, it shouldn't escape our notice that this city, which was viewed as being unassailable, that there's no way it's going to fall, and had stood secure for all this length of time, falls easily to David. It's not because David was such a shrewd warrior. It's because of the hand of God. And there's a spiritual lesson here. We can have great spiritual strongholds in our own lives. We are powerless to conquer them. The enemy has hold. When it comes to our own salvation, we are powerless to deliver ourselves from our sin. And once you are saved, you are still powerless to deliver yourself from your own sin. But what we have no power for easily melts away by the power of God. There is no sin too strong for God. No stronghold that he can't easily conquer. And this city was taken by faith. That's why it says he became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. We should not overlook that. This is not a victory by David's might, but this is what God has done. In verse 12, and David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. It's very important there, because David is is functioning well when he realizes this. He goes, I am being blessed, I am being strengthened, I am being established, and it's not because of me. God is doing this, and it's because of his people, so if David can live in that spirit, he will serve truly as a as a servant king, as a shepherd king, who realizes that he has not been elevated for his sake. Remember, Saul thought the whole the authority is about him. And so any threat to his authority, he would attack and seek to kill the person. David, seeing from the very beginning, this isn't about me. God has established me as king, and he has not made me king for my sake, but for the sake of of his people, If we could all remember that. In every position that God places us in, whether it's within our own home, whether it's with business or coworkers, in any level of responsibility and authority that God gives us, it is not for our sake. It is for the sake of others and for the glory of God. And it shouldn't go to our heads. It ought to keep us humble. Meanwhile... Verse 13, sad verse, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. And he came from, after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And then list the names of them. This is the only place in the Bible when you have concubine and wife in the same verse that the concubine word precedes wife. In every other instance, it's wives and concubines. It seems that the writer here is wanting to draw attention to the concubines and not in a positive light. This is not what David should be doing. God is blessing him. He knows God is blessing him. Meanwhile, while acknowledging it is not for his sake, David is acting for his sake. That contradiction is in all of us. I hate seeing it. I wish it wasn't true of him. I mean, what's true of him is true of each of us. It doesn't justify it. In the rest of the chapter, chapter 5, David has war with the Philistines. And as he was prone to do in every situation other than with women, he consulted God. Verse 19, Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines, and will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And so they were, and then it says in verse 21, And they abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. Glad we have First Chronicles. Because um, First Chronicles 14.12 says that though David and his men carried the idols away, they burned them. So they didn't carry them away and put them in their homes. They carried away and piled them up and lit them on fire. I think the reason that the Lord has included this here is because you recall that when in the first part of 1 Samuel, when the Israelites went into battle, they took the Ark of the Covenant with them. They lost the battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines took it captive. So as as it were, it looked as though they had lost their God, and the Philistines took it that way. And now the Philistines have taken their gods into battle with them, and they've abandoned them. And so David and his men collect them and burn them, because they recognize there's nothing to them. There's another battle. Again, verse 23, David inquires of the Lord. God tells him how to approach the battle, and again they win, and the back of the Philistines is broken. In chapter 6, David moves the ark into Jerusalem. Now David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 men. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, To bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Now, the reason I read from Psalm 24 this morning is because that psalm may have very well been written at this time when David is bringing the ark of the covenant into the city. And I love that last part of the psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. David was recognizing that he is not the King of glory. God is. And this ark is symbolic of the presence of God. And so they bring it in, but they, on their way, they, they first put it in a new cart, verse 3. <clears throat> Big mistake. The Philistines did this, and nothing happened. They loaded it up on a new cart, put some ox out in front of it, and sent it on its way, and it went straight to Israel. So they loaded up on a new cart, and they brought it with the ark of God, verse 4, from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. And meanwhile... David and all his house of Israel was celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there. By the ark of God. The ark was also called the mercy seat. Because this is the place you went to get mercy. And isn't it ironic that at the place where you would go to get mercy, this man is struck down next to the mercy seat. He presumed to touch the ark of God. God viewed it as irreverence. He was not being treated as holy. We sometimes use the phrase not touching the glory of God, and it's taken from this. It's a serious thing. God was angry, and he struck down Uzzah. The ark should have been carried on poles through rings that were fashioned on the side of this box, gold rings. And the poles were stuck through the rings, and and then... Lifted onto the shoulders of priests. priest. That way there would be no way for it to fall. David didn't read his Bible. And he didn't do it as God had prescribed. But David's been doing a lot of things that the Bible doesn't prescribe. And he seems to be getting away with it. And on this occasion God says, no. I'm not going to let this slide. And David was angry. Why would David be angry, verse 8? David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. In verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. I can only guess that he was angry with God because David felt like he was doing a good thing, doing the right thing. And why would God be angry about that? Because he's not doing it the way that God wants. He's doing the right thing, a good thing, in the wrong way. And David becomes afraid of God. And that isn't a bad thing. So there's some good that comes from this. It's a man that's being greatly blessed of God. And he's a bit too careless with God's word. And God is reminding him of how important his word is and how important obedience is to him. It's a strong, powerful lesson and rebuke on David. So David was unwilling to move the ark, verse 10, so he let it stay where it was at with another man in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And it was there for three months, and God blessed the socks off Obed-Edom. And he became, Josephus says, very wealthy during that three months, supernaturally. And so David goes, I want the ark. So he started having a Bible study. And he went back and read in his Old Testament. This is how you're supposed to move it. And so they did it right this time. Now, I know, it, obviously, David is motivated by the blessing. But giving David credit here, I think that he just recognizes that our blessing is God. And there is no greater blessing than the presence of God. David's not superstitious. He does not believe that by having the ark, you have God's presence. He knows that's not true. But he does know in some unique sense, God has assigned his presence to this ark. It does symbolize God's presence. And David knows that he has nothing if he does not have God. The very reason that David wanted the ark in Jerusalem and not in some outlying village. It's because he wanted Israel to see that the central issue, the central thing of importance for the national vitality, for the safety, prosperity of Israel is God himself. He is not to be peripheral. He is not to be in some distant village that we sometimes take recognition of. He is to be in the very heartbeat of this nation, in the capital of the nation, David was saying, the big thing in this nation is not me, it is God. And we want God's dwelling place to be in the political center of this nation. And so David was right in wanting the ark and eventually the temple to be constructed in this city. And so they bring the ark to Jerusalem beginning in verse 12. And this time they do it properly. And it says in verse 13, and so And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord and shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this. And will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. David was leaping and dancing with great joy. I can only imagine, because I cannot dance. But one day, maybe I'll have dance lessons in heaven, and you'll be impressed. I remember years ago, we had a square dance, the church did, and and unknown to me, I was being videotaped. And then the next Sunday, it was put up on the big screen. I thought I was doing pretty well. All my delusions were, were... we exposed there. Yeah. Apparently I look pretty robotic when I'm dancing, but anyway, even square dancing. David could not have been more joyful in the presence of God. There is no greater joy than the Lord himself. When the scripture says the Lord is our joy, it means not that it gives joy, but he is our joy. The Lord is our joy. In John 17, in Jesus, what is called his high priestly prayer, he's praying for his disciples and for us before his crucifixion. One of the things he prays is, Father, make them one with us, that our joy might be in them you ever think about that? It's one of the reasons that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, so that we could enter into the joy of God. We don't often think of the Trinity as being a relationship that is characterized by joy, but it is. There is great joy between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Absolute joy. Abandon, freedom. And they want us to know that. And that's one of the reasons Jesus died for our sin, so that we could come into the joy of his presence. So we have been brought into the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ to know him as our joy. So in this, I'm impressed with David. He is being not an exhibitionist, as his wife thought, He's just being self-forgetful. There is just an abandonment of what anyone thinks. He's not dancing naked, as I think the King James says. He is wearing a linen ephod. It's the same ephod that a priest would wear. And it's not saying that David is functioning as a priest. It's just saying that he has put aside his kingly robes, his royal attire and has put on the simple attire of a simple linen ephod. So he's exchanged glory for humility. And in humility, he is expressing the joy of God. But that joy is there. See, the anger has been replaced with joy because he is functioning now in keeping with the word of God. When he takes Michael as his wife, there's no joy. Because he wasn't functioning in keeping with the word of God. Now, when he's moving the ark as God has prescribed, there's joy. And this is not a paradox. This is is not a, a, a contradiction. We often think that it is. That if you live your life ordered according to scripture, it will kill your joy. Nothing could be further from the truth. When we live by faith in keeping with what God has prescribed, we will know the Lord as our joy because there's nothing between us and him. We're functioning before him in humility, in simplicity, in purity as God has designed. And we can know joy that's indescribable. And then along comes Michael and just unplugs the joy. Thanks a lot. Two passages in the New Testament came to mind as I was thinking on this, on Michael and how she robbed David of his joy. Because if the Lord is our joy, then nobody can rob our joy. But she robbed his Two passages, Paul and John. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. See, he already had joy. And nobody could rob him from the joy that comes of living in an abiding relationship with Jesus. Nobody, no circumstance, no person, has the power to break that abiding relationship with Christ and the joy that comes from it. But, complete joy, perfect joy, is when we can know the joy of abiding with Christ and the joy of being in fellowship with other believers who are also abiding in Christ. That is complete joy. John makes the same reference in 1 John chapter 1, where he writes in verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So these guys were, and they, you know, sometimes we can be so... Superficial in our, in our explanation of the Christian life where we can say, oh, Jesus is my joy and I never have a bad, I never have a sad thought. Come on. <laughs> Jesus can be your joy, but life is full of pain and grief and you can have joy killers all around you. Jesus is still your joy. But let's be honest. It is not a complete joy. And it isn't complete until everybody around you is knowing Jesus is their joy too. And in 1 John, he says that happens when we walk in the light with God. And when we each individually walk in the light with God, then our fellowship with one another will be complete. And our joy will be complete. But for that to happen, to walk in the light with Him we have to individually be acknowledging when we sin and confess our sin and turn from our sin to turn away from the darkness and come back to the light, to the fellowship with Christ. And in doing that, we actually will be restored to fellowship with those who are also walking in the light with him. And our joy will be complete. It's not to say that you cannot know the joy of the Lord when other Christians aren't. The Lord is our joy. And no person has the power to take that away. But life is, joy is made complete when we are all walking in the light with Jesus. I just want to wrap up these observations that I've been making here from chapter 5 and 6 with some good things. But, just remember, before I get to that, Michael, the reason that she doesn't have children, it says that she had no child to the day of her death, is very likely because David cut off all intimacy with her. David punished her. It's not right. You see, again, here's a guy who's just been filled with the Spirit, rejoicing in the Lord. Somebody robs him of his joy, and he reacts in the flesh. And he says, I'll teach you a thing or two. And she doesn't have kids. And many commentaries say they think it's because David cut off sexual intimacy. With her. What should he have done? Should have gone to her and said, You know, I have nothing to apologize for. And we need to talk about what humility looks like and what it means to be a king. And I'm not here to exalt myself, I am here to see God exalted. And it's never been about me, and it's never going to be about me. So you need to understand how I operate. And as long as you think that being a king and having authority is about me, we're going to have problems here. But if you'll get on the same page with me, and I'm willing to see that happen, then we're going to be good. But rather than work through this with her, He sexually punishes her. That is not right. You don't respond evil for evil. But the Lord says, overcome evil with good. David wasn't doing that. But I don't want to end with that. So here are some lessons that we can take good things from this section of Scripture. Number one... Joy is the birthright of the Christian. Jesus died so that we can have the joy of God. Give thanks. Live in the light. And know that your joy is not in circumstances, it is truly in God Himself. Jesus is our joy. Live simply, live in purity. Live a life yielded, and you'll know the joy of the Lord. Number two, when God establishes boundaries, as he frequently does through his word, they aren't negotiables. We may have what we think are great reasons to ignore what God is saying. There are no good reasons. It may make sense to us. It may appear foolish to live, as God says. Jesus says that I do all the things that my Father says. And his commandments are not burdensome. And they are eternal life. There are boundaries. But when we live according, by faith, according to the boundaries that God establishes, there is great freedom. Great freedom. Third, the joy of God's presence is coupled with the sanctity of God's presence. He is a holy God. And we can't just simply come to Him for joy while ignoring the truth that He is a holy God. And it is only by the blood of Christ that we can approach Him. And when we do approach Him by the blood of Christ... It is with confidence, but also with reverence. And finally, the central place of Jesus Christ in all of life. He is not something we do at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. The scripture tells us that Jesus is our life. He is the central thing. He is the only thing. He is the all in all. And life will only make sense and only be filled with joy when we are true to him and truly live from Christ with every breath we take. Jesus is central. Not an add-on, not something that we plug in here and we... And we plug out there, but he is the one we live from. As Paul said, to live is Christ. With that, I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for these flawed men that you have so greatly used and that you are constantly encouraging toward intimacy and fellowship with yourself. Nothing's changed. We are all flawed people. None of us in this room are perfect. I thank you, God, that you desire us. You are constantly beckoning us to enter into fellowship and intimacy with you, to walk in light with you, and that we might know you personally as our joy. Thank you that that joy is not dependent on circumstances or people but Father, we would pray that our joy would be made complete and increasingly as a body in this local church as well as beyond these walls, God, that we, your people, would walk in the light and have that experience of self-forgetful, complete abandon, not having to perform, not having to defend ourselves, We can live in such freedom, God, because we each are walking in the light with you and knowing Jesus as our life. Thank you, God, for all that you are to us, that you are our blessing, and you're the one, Lord, who exalts, who blesses. You are our good, and we have no other. In Jesus' name, amen.